Hey, Pioneers, welcome to episode number 335. Today's episode, we are going to be talking about the best time saving tips for when you are putting in new garden beds. We'll also be talking about ways that you can take advantage of shady wooded areas of your homestead property that aren't really conducive to growing vegetables, but what can you grow in there, those spots instead? My name is Melissa K. Norris. I'm a fifth generation homesteader, founder of the Pioneering Today Academy, as well as MelissaKNorris.com. And I teach thousands of people every single month how to live homegrown and handmade using simple, modern homesteading for a healthier and more self-sufficient life. I am so happy that you are here with us today. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about those time-saving tips, as I mentioned, and we're also going to be talking about planning out your pantry organization and size. Today's episode is part of our series where members of the Pioneering Today Academy, which is my membership, get to come on and do a one-on-one coaching based upon whatever it is within homesteading that they need help with. If you are a member of the Pioneering Today Academy, we send out this invitation and you get to fill out a form to do these one-on-one, I call them coaching because I don't really know what else to call them. They're not They're kind of like a coaching, but also a consult opportunity. And while I wish that I could offer this to everyone, I simply don't have enough hours in the day. So we offer it to Academy members only and they get you get an opportunity to fill out the form and then we pick the episode or the people to do the consults with based upon what we feel are going to be able to help the most amount of people or people who will have similar struggles to the guests that and member that I'm talking to so that it will be applicable to you. So I think that this episode is going to be very helpful to so many of you because a lot of us don't have a lot of extra time to spend in the garden. And Susan, who is the member that we're going to be talking with today in just a few short minutes, she is still working a full-time job and will be doing so for quite a while yet. And so she needs to be able to grow as much of her own food as possible with the smallest amount of hands-on time. And because we did our homesteading for over 10 years while still working a day job, there are definite things that I learned and had to implement when I only had a little bit of time in the morning before leaving for work and a little bit of time when I got home and mainly had to do everything else on the weekends. Now, we are closed right now for new members to the Pioneering Today Academy, but, 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 We will be opening for new members the first time since last fall on March 23rd, 2022. So you can get on the wait list for that by going to melissakianoris.com forward slash PTA, obviously abbreviation for Pioneering Today Academy, but you can get on the wait list so that you get the very first chance to join when we open on March 23rd. So without further ado, let's jump straight to this interview with Susan. Well, Susan, welcome to the Pioneering Today podcast. Hi. 
So I am really excited to chat with you and help you come up with a plan because you have something very exciting happening in 2022, which is the year, yes. the beginning of the year at the time we started this recording. So give me a little bit about that and then how I can help. So my husband and I currently live in Southern New Hampshire and we bought a, bought a nine acre plot of land up in Southern Maine, where we're going to be hopefully building a home this year. We're very excited about it. Both of my brothers live in South Park. That's what we want to uh, kind of get up there and be closer to them. Right now, it's a, it's a little over an hour drive to see them. And so what's great about it is that we get to start from scratch on everything because it's just a raw piece of land. So I wanted a little bit of help in planning because I work full time and there's really no changing that anytime until I retire. Yeah. So I need some help with time-saving tips. And I have lots of questions on designing my home because we do a, I do a lot of preserving. Oh, you're talking my love language. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, well, that is really exciting. You know, being able, when I know it can almost feel daunting when it's completely raw, but it's also really exciting because you can get, do things to your specs and, and how you want it. But it's also yeah. like, oh, it's not like coming in and just changing things there's a lot to be done when you're starting from scratch, but it's very exciting. Yeah. So when it comes to the layout of the home compared to what you have now, are you going to be doing the same square footage or is it going to be larger or do you know yet? It's going to be kind of the same, only uh, we're going to be designing it to be a little bit more effective for what we need. Mm -hmm. The people that built the house we have now, it's not that old, but they they didn't have kids. And so a lot of the rooms are very small. And then our downstairs uh, is finished and it's just kind of one big, large room. And we just don't find it to be, I don't know, just very effective for use. So the house that we're designing now, it's going to have um, a much larger kitchen uh, with an island because I don't have an island right now and a very large pantry. Okay, you're gonna love having an island. Having lived in a <laughs> 1974 single wide trailer for a good portion of my life that did not have an island at all. <laughs> and then moving to a home that had an island. Oh, it just, one of my must haves if we ever move from here is an island in the kitchen. So you're going to love that. Yeah, so for, for the pantry space, what types of food preservation, which this will make a little bit more sense when, once I go, but are you planning on doing any type of root cellaring type storage or is it mainly just canned goods fermenting? Like what are the types of food preservation that you do or that you maybe hope to be adding once you're in that place? So the pantry that's going to be next to the kitchen is mainly going to be for canning storage. I've done water bath canning. I do have a pressure canning system, but I haven't been able to use it yet. So it's going to be mainly just, just storing of groceries. And I did want to ask you because we will have a basement and I wanted to get some knowledge on maybe setting up a separate small root cellar area. Yeah. And that's what, that's why I was wondering if you wanted to do that. And yeah. you are going to have a basement. So that is going to be so helpful for the root cellar uh, type storage. And so that's one of the things is you'll, Ideally, with the basement, for the root cellar, depending on what you can easily 
put down there and have it stay versus not is mm-hmm. knowing the humidity and then the temperatures. And so I know with the humidity, like we can kind of guess, but if you can get a reader in there and just get some data and obviously you'll have to have the house built first. I understand that. Um, <laughs> I know it's, this is a new construction, but starting to monitor the humidity so you can get some re, some data on there because that will inform what will actually stay and keep there versus not. So when like looking at things like winter squash and onions and garlic, they all store really well in slightly warmer conditions. So anywhere from, you know, like 45, even up to 65 degrees Fahrenheit, because I've stored them very successfully in our in our kitchen and just a closet that's off the kitchen, um, all above ground. And they don't have to have the higher levels of humidity that things like apples and potatoes and carrots require, because if you've ever tried storing potatoes for any period of time, you'll notice that they quickly can shrivel and sprout. And the shriveling is not having adequate humidity, obviously. And then usually the sprouting is because the temperature is too warm and they're being exposed to much light. So that's why I say, like, if you can get some recordings of the humidity, it'll really let you know which of the vegetables will store down there well and which ones are going to be really short term, but not for long. Now, there's some amazing resources and books out there, and I will put in the the blog posts. I don't have them at my fingertips at the moment, but I'll um, email you those. Some really great titles if you decide you want to do more of a section that's traditional root cellaring. And generally speaking, that means that you would have a portion, and this is, of course, like draining and and how if it's a, you know, above a daylight basement versus down deeper. But for the humidity is really having a gravel floor or a dirt floor. And I know in a basement that most people are like, well, I don't know that I really want a section unless it was completely walled off that would be that way. But that's uh, really the way to get humidity is having some of that earthen floor and it can be covered in gravel or dirt um, to be able to really successfully store things like potatoes and carrots and even apples that require that the more humidity. So, okay. Yeah. And then I have to say for the pantry, which you probably know, especially if you are going from a house that's very similar and then you're able to design the new one kind of off of that layout is when we first moved into the home that we're in now, which was in 2006, it was almost double the square footage because we were living in like an 800 square foot home, a very, very small single wide trailer. So when we moved in here, I thought, oh my goodness, our house now is, I shouldn't know what our square footage is. We've been here so long, I forget those specs. I think we're right around 1500 square feet. So almost doubled. And I thought I will never run out of route. Like this is a palace. I've got so much storage space and cupboards and Oh my goodness. And now here we are like 16 years later. And of course I've got now um, two children at that time. We, my son was just 18 months old. We only had one and he's a teenager, but we are actually adding on an additional 200 square feet to our place so that we've got more storage room and a place. Oh, nice. I'm very excited. But so I'm saying like, if you can go bigger on the food storage spots, <laughs> like the bigger the pantry. And the reason for that is like we brought in a freeze dryer and it takes, I mean, it, they're not huge, but they're not small like a dehydrator that you can just put under the cupboard when it's not in use. And it also mm-hmm. means I'm even preserving more food because I'm able to use the freeze dryer to do things that I previously couldn't do with just a regular dehydrator, or even canning. 
And so the the new spot that we're that we're building and extending out off the side of the house to build this will have house the freeze dryer. It allow me to have more things in bulk out there. I'll still keep the canning jars because I just, you know, cooking for those constantly in their current spot, but I can put back stock back there. So I just I say that just to think about like if you think you ever would get something like a freeze dryer or continue to expanding the amount of food that you're preserving, especially as you reach retirement, that just make sure you've got that adequate space and maybe have a little bit more storage than you thought you would need or just to consider. Can you use a freeze dryer in a, in a pantry? I've never used one before. Yeah, they you just need to have like adequate, you know, not right against the wall so that the pump okay. in it can vent, but just like any, you know, piece of equipment, you would just wouldn't want to have it directly against the wall, but, you know, like a few inches clearance. I'm not sure if there's actual, I need to look at that to see if it's like a full, if it says like six inches or something like that, but just inches. Okay. So you can have it on a table in there. And yeah, the main thing is with the freeze dryer is you have to drain it into a bucket. So we have a five gallon bucket because what happens is, is it freezes it to like negative temperatures. And so it takes it down and it freezes it. And so then any of the moisture is then sucked out once it's frozen is then sucked out with the vacuum pump. So that's how it removes the moisture initially. And then it switches over and it dehydrates, dehydrates it to take further any out. But because there's actually the freezing process, there's ice in there and the moisture that was removed from the freezing part. And so after you do a run, then you have to drain the ice melt and then it drain, it has to have somewhere to go and it drains out. And so unless you have it hooked up to a, a drain, which most people don't have a, a drain just in the floor where it can easily go, then right. there's a tube and it just like, you probably don't even honestly need a five gallon bucket. I've never had it fill up anywhere near that much. Usually in the bottom of the five gallon bucket, I think the most on a, a run that had a lot of heavy ice load in it or a lot of moisture, you know, maybe two to three inches in the bottom of a five gallon bucket. So I could get away with a smaller bucket but I wasn't sure when we first started. So I'm like, I don't want to have water all over anywhere and have it set up. So I'll probably use a slightly smaller bucket once we get it in here. But so you do kind of have to have some space just knowing too, like whatever countertop or shelving that you have it on, that there's a room for the drain hose to go down through it. And then underneath that there's something for it to drain the water into. And then you just empty that out. Yeah. Okay, great. The pantry is going to be for not just food, but also like all of my small appliances, like my dehydrator. And I'll probably have some cabinets to tuck that stuff away, like maybe on the bottom and then have shelves on top. Yes, I'm yeah, I'm with you. I like being able to access those things easily, but I don't necessarily need them being front and center or seeing them all the time. So I like the idea of of the cupboards. I'm with you there. Yeah, there's because well, some of them are really heavy. Like I have a, a nice KitchenAid mixer and that's just not something I want to be dragging around the house. <laughs> no, it's no. Heavy. <laughs> it, it is heavy, almost deceptively. Like when you when I, I when I got mine and I first went to move it, it was kind of the same thing. I'm like, oh, well, I maybe I'll just bring it out, you know, when I'm using it and then put it underneath no. the cupboard. No. Yeah. It's, after I picked it up, I'm like, nope, this baby is staying right, right where it's at. <laughs> Yeah, we have it out in the kitchen. It's the one thing we have on the counter because we don't have a lot of counter space right now. But I'm like, I'm not lugging this every time I want to make something. (laughs) Yes, completely agreed. So in regards to house planning, do you have any other questions regarding that? Not the house itself, but I do have a few questions on um, how to set up our, our land. Yeah. 
So we're going to be starting from fresh for a garden. I think I mentioned before that a couple of years ago, I got diagnosed with acid reflux and I've been on a very low dose medication ever since. And I've been trying to get off of it and I've pretty much changed enough of my eating where it doesn't go through the medication anymore. Mm -hmm. So now my goal is to try and get off of it someday. So a couple of years ago, I started my own garden and last year I successfully grew tomatoes and I've grown cucumbers and peppers and things like that. Um, but I want to really expand on the garden. And currently where we are, we're kind of on a, a hill with rocks. So I grow all in grow bags now. So when we get up there, I'm going to have a mix of grow bags. We're going to do some raised beds. And I, I might try and grow some things in ground. And I didn't know if you had some advice as to what works better in what container. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. And congratulations on working towards getting off. I, that is a journey I've went through myself. I know. Um, so I know how much work goes into that and also how long it can take because it's not yeah. like an instant thing. So I just wanted to touch on that for a minute. So to give you encouragement <laughs> and yes, yeah, so I hope that you're able to do it. And, and I don't know, obviously I can't give medical advice because I'm not, I'm not a medical, but just make sure when you're coming off, if you've been on, um, I don't know if it's a proton pump inhibitor or not, but just make sure that you really talk with your pharmacist and your doctor and do a taper because I know a yes. lot of people, okay, good. A lot of people don't yes. realize that. They don't realize that if you don't taper down, that it actually can trigger a reaction where your body goes into hyperdrive and creates a ton more acid. And if oh. you taper, it helps to eliminate that. And so I feel like a lot of people have tried to go off and they didn't realize that. And so they thought, oh, I can't go off. It was just because they, they tried to stop too fast. So definitely talk with them because they'll be able to go like what dose you've been on and how long and to help you do an appropriate taper. So, yeah. I'm honestly terrified to get off of it at this point because it was so bad. So it's not something I would just <laughs> go cold turkey off of. <laughs> okay, good. I, I know most people probably went, but then I do know other people who just, you don't know what you don't know. So I just wanted to, right. to make sure that, that we shared that. So for... The gardening. Uh, that is a great question because you can grow anything in a raised bed provided that it's uh, deep enough for the root system. But there's also the expense of initially building the raised bed where it's usually depending upon your soil. Of course, if you have really poor soil for anybody who's listening, if you have extremely poor soil, a lot of people find it easier to go the raised bed route if they're already going to have to be bringing in some type of dirt that their existing dirt in the ground is just not conducive to growing. Then in the long run, it's actually cheaper to build a raised bed, bring in soil and start getting produce right away than the months and years that it can take to develop good soil in ground if you're starting with really, really poor soil. But I don't think that that's your case, but I just wanted to preface that with it for anybody who's listening. I think but it's fairly sandy. Okay. So that just means that you'll be wanting to bring in lots of organic matter, compost, that type of thing to help get, get more in there. So it's not so sandy, which is very, very doable. And that probably is a little bit easier to deal with than you might have to water more the first, first year until you get more built in and, and really watch that if there's plants that are not as drought tolerant or in the summer months, but mulch will definitely help with that as well. But you'll just kind of want to keep an eye on that with, with your irrigation. But 
I think really rocky soil is probably some of the hardest because the rocks don't ever really break down. Yeah. <laughs> so with the sandy soil, um, I feel like that's a little bit easier to, to deal with and mitigate. You just have to watch how quickly things dry out. But with that being said, I like to look at what has the most expansive root system and or really spreads out and takes up a lot of growing space. And so those are the items that I would put in the ground if it were me and then save the raised beds for things that aren't so expansive. Just because if you've got a raised bed, say, that's like, you know, four by six feet, for example, probably only going to really be able to grow in that just because of their vining habit and how much they spread, maybe five winter squash or six zucchini, for example. But if you had those in the ground where they can really vine out and you're not so limited on space, then with that raised bed section, excuse me, you could, you know, grow tomatoes in there. You could have lettuce tucked in there. You can have basil in there. Your just ability to grow more in that space effect or efficiently, I feel like if you've got the option of doing both is going yeah. to, is going to be better. Um, and of course, even with the raised beds, if you get close enough to one another with your aisle way, then you can take the hog panels and do a trellis between the two raised beds. So it's like going over the walkway and mm -hmm. then you'll be able to take advantage of that vertical space too. So that might be something where you're like, oh, I'm, I do want to put some vining plants in and you would plant them on the edge so that they would be growing. You'd train them to grow up and over that trellis. And that would still leave a lot of space in that raised bed area for you to grow. So there are kind of like, you know, little ways that you can get around that and, and maximize even with the vining ones, just depending on how, you know, deep and big that the raised beds are. For me, I have found that tomatoes, because they have such a large, well, you know, you've been growing them in containers. I found <laughs> that they have such a large root system or want to more so than, than what we would anticipate. I think that once I started growing them in the ground versus growing them in containers, I found that I got a, a much larger harvest. Uh, they just seem to be oh. more prolific. So I would even maybe, I know you've got the grow bags for them, but what might be fun, and this is something that I love and encourage everybody to do is to test things out. Don't test the whole crop. Like, don't be like, oh, I know I get this amount of tomatoes by growing these in the grow bags. And then you switch it all the way around. But I would try a couple of tomatoes in the ground and then just see, do you notice any difference between growing them in the grow bags versus in the ground? You know, do you have to water more often or do they seem bigger? Do they feel like you get more of a harvest? And just like do your own little split test on them and then record that on your property. That makes sense. Yeah, I've there's been some that I have been so pleasantly surprised and that I switch and that's the only way that I grow it from there on out. And then there's been others where I'm like, oh, buddy, I am so glad that I did not bet the whole harvest on this test and that I kept some <laughs> the other way. So really just kind of looking at the space it, it takes as it grows above ground and then also the root system underground. And is this something that has a more expansive root system? And that's kind of how I, is it kind of just an easier criteria I would use for what you would be putting in the raised beds versus in the ground. And then I don't know if you'll want to be trying to do any of the in-ground overwintering of some things like potatoes and carrots. And I don't know what your, do you know what your usual temperatures are, the cold temps in the winter months where you're going to be moving? Cold. Okay. <laughs> I 
figured you said Southern Maine. And so I'm like, yeah. it's probably going to be pretty cold. <laughs> the reason I say that is because if you are going to try to overwinter anything like carrots and or potatoes in the ground, then I have successfully overwintered our potatoes at five degrees. We don't hit negatives here. So if you're hitting negatives, I don't know how well it would work. I would only test a small amount, but I can leave my potatoes in ground and I do the trenching method where I plant them deep and then I just continue to add soil on top in the ground as they grow. And then after they're done producing and the vines grow back, die back, excuse me, I will mulch with straw about four to six inches thick of heavy straw. And then I just go and pull that back and dig them out as I need it. Of course, when we had three feet of snow, I wasn't digging through the three feet of snow to get them, but (laughs) that's our usual. (laughs) Yes. So it kind of matters, but like carrots, oftentimes if you want to leave some of the carrots in the ground to harvest in the spring, once the snow does begin to melt, that would be an option. And then also, but it would depend on if they freeze or not. So the reason I was bringing that up is because those types of crops you're going to try to overwinter in the raised bed, you're going to have to use a lot more insulation, maybe lining the outside of the raised bed with some straw bales, et cetera. Because if they're in the ground, you're only having to mulch from the top just because they're Mm -hmm. gonna stay better insulated. So that would be something depending on climate and, and what you're hoping to do with some of your crops that I would also take into consideration. Is this going in a raised bed or is this going to be going in the ground? Okay. We have another, a couple other sections of the property. So our land is at the end of a dead end private road. And so there's only four houses on this road. And we have met my two other neighbors. They're fantastic. And my younger brother has actually purchased the land on the other side of us. So it's going to be really fun. Yeah. (laughs) So it's not a heavy traveled road at all. So we have a long side of the road and we have a buffer along the road of forested wetlands that we can't actually like put our house over there. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you knew, I know normally you're not supposed to plant anything alongside of the road because you don't want any runoff or exhaust or anything like that, but we're not going to really have that. So it's a big space that I want to try and utilize in either the forest or alongside of the road. I don't know if you had any suggestions. You know, as long as I don't know in where we live, even on our more rural rural roads, the county will come through and spray. So you have to make sure you have signs up that say don't spray. I don't know about your county. Obviously, it's very different states. But that would be one one thing that I would consider is making sure you have signs up that say no spray really clearly marked and visible and maybe even calling and checking with the county and making sure that asking them, like, how big do the signs need to be or do I need to report this or what they recommend so that they don't spray there. They might not because it's a private road. Like we're in charge of maintaining the road ourselves. We have to organize the plowing. If anything ever got damaged, we would have to pay for it. So I don't know if the town would actually do that. Okay. You might just want to check just just to to make sure. But hopefully that's not an issue. And then you don't even have to worry about putting up the signs and making sure that they obey the signs, so to speak. (laughs) Uh, But just something to consider. But yeah, that would be because... uh, I understand that we have a wetland forested area that we can't do any building and can't remove anything from either. But that can be, depending upon how much sunlight it gets, those can be great places for some perennial and permaculture. So elderberries would be great. Things like salmon berries, um, huckleberries, Things that already will grow in a wooded or more shaded environment. So I'm, I'm thinking of, of plants that produce fruit that are 
kind of native to our area in that forested shady thing, but I'm assuming would grow well where you are. But those are things that I would kind of look at, like, are there any types of wild fruit that already grow in your area that you could bring more in there? Um, I'm pretty sure one of my neighbors said that there's a, there's a few blackberry bushes. Okay, perfect. And blackberries grow everywhere here as well. They don't really care. The ones that are in more full sun do produce more berries and earlier, but even the ones in full shade here will still produce some fruit. It's just a little bit later in the summer, which I actually don't mind that they produce later in the summer because that's when I actually can get to them. Yeah, I would look at that. You might, you know, look at how much direct sunlight it's getting based upon, you know, how the, the sun falls along the side there. Of course, some of the trees in wintertime, if you're looking at that right now, don't have their leaves out um, unless they're all evergreen. So just kind of keep that in mind, like, oh, when this is all leafed out, will this be actually more shadier than it is now? But then I would just start looking at what is native to your area as far as berries and edible plants, that type of thing. And then just looking and see, can I purchase actually more of those and purposely plant them here? Because you know that they'll already grow easily in that environment. But I would look at some of those berries, especially like elderberries. Those should grow really well there for you, especially along okay. alongside. But yeah, and then like there's even, you know, as you get you know further into it, there is, you know, um, there's, you know, edible like hostas will grow well in the shade. And I know we're talking about a wooded area, but even in the yard, like we think of hostas as a, as a pretty shade plant, but you actually, mm-hmm. the roots of them are edible. So it may even be like a little bit off the beaten path of what we would consider normal food crops um, that you might be able to, to tuck in there and, and take advantage of that space. Okay, well, that sounds good. I also wanna grow some apple trees. I know mm-hmm. that you have extensive experience in that. We're hoping to be up there next year, but with everything that's going on, I don't think we're going to be able to get up there probably next fall. Okay. I don't know if I should try and get something up there next fall or if I should wait till next spring. That's a great question. So with the apple trees, if you can do a fall planting, that is great. The only thing, if you're not on the property yet, that... You, I mean, obviously with apple trees, you know, you're going to want to make sure that you have got the varieties that will cross pollinate one another so, so that you will actually get your fruit production once they're old enough, but deer or any wildlife, just making sure that you've got them well protected, especially when they're young. And if you're not there, you know, to really monitor and see that would be something that I would just really make sure that you've got, I would get, you know, like wire fencing and put the T posts around it and and completely wrap it basically um, around with that just to keep any of the deer off. And then you would want to also consider later in winter, like once you start to get snow and really cold is keeping an eye on the like at ground level on the trunk to make sure that you don't have any rabbits or voles or anything that are starting to eat the bark because they get hungry. Um, In that case, you may need to wrap it, but I wouldn't, you wouldn't want to do that right at planting time in the fall. Usually that's a little bit later in the season, but it is something, especially when it's a younger tree, because it's more tender and those little stinky rodents like to get in there and (laughs) take advantage of that. Um, So it would just be, just be knowing that there would be, you know, that you would want to check on those things um, especially if you're not up there that you're able to access and get up there just to keep an, an eye on it every so often. I mean, I wouldn't worry about even checking on it weekly, quite honestly. I just from the get-go would, would wrap that 
uh, with the wire, just using some of those those T posts just to keep the deer off of them um, when they're yeah, not I know going we in. Have a lot of wildlife up there. Yes, yeah, that's so. That's the biggest thing with the fruit trees. Even he, even here, I actually put some new fruit trees in. Literally, my front yard, I could look out my bedroom window and see them. And we've had the deer come in, and so I still have to keep them them wrapped. You know, once the trees are more mature, then I can take it off, and it's fine because if they come and nibble a few of the lower branches, they're not taking off everything and then there's nothing left for the tree. Um, so you don't always have to keep it up, but I would definitely recommend it for the first couple of years. Okay. One final question. What do you consider to be your biggest time saver in the garden? Oh gosh, that is a in good maintaining question. it or, or anything. Yeah, that's a great question. Really was the most time saving is kind of twofold. It's either just spending 10 to 15 minutes every morning out in the garden so that none of the tasks build up to be this huge thing that I that I then have to spend hours on the weekend uh, correcting or maintaining or, or dealing with. If that's not a possibility, like say you decide to plant and your guys aren't living up there this year, then I then that that gets a little bit more difficult. And so it is just making sure that I've got a really good mulch layer down so that I don't have to do as much hands-on weeding. That that has really been, because I feel like once the garden is planted, uh, you know, there's a lot with seeds starting and actually getting it in the ground and all of that. But once it's actually in the ground, until you come to full on harvest time, where which is the fun part, right? We get to bring in the harvest. I really find (laughs) most of the maintenance work really is, for the most part, it's keeping the weeds at bay. I mean, there's a little bit of, you know, maybe needing to water with some, fish uh, fertilizer concentrate on some plants that might need a little bit of an extra boost at the beginning of the growing season. I usually do that with my onions and my tomato plants. And then once they start to get close to bearing fruit with the tomatoes and their blossoms, and then the onions get closer to bulbing, then I pull back and I don't do that anymore. But it really is the weeding maintenance, I find, that is the most time consuming. And I found what worked really well, and it lasted for a full two years. And that was we put the plants in and then lined it with cardboard in the aisleways and just kind of right up to the stem of the plant first with cardboard. And then we put the wood chips on top of the cardboard. And so the cardboard helped to smother any little weeds that wanted to pop up. And then the sawdust, you know, kept after the cardboard broke down, then the sawdust was that barrier layer or excuse me, not sawdust, wood chips. And so now we're coming up on year three and we just started to have quite a few weeds pop through this fall. And now as the snow is melting, you know, nothing's really coming yet, but I can see where the weeds were from last year. I'm like, okay, we're going to have to redo uh, some of these sections with either heavier wood chips again, like a new layer, because it's obviously broken down. And we'll probably do a, a big layer of composted manure and then the wood chips on top of that in the growing rows. I don't care so much about the walkway if there's the composted manure, but give it a good dose of that and then reapply. So there is the reapplication part, but that's really true with any mulch. But I did find for the first two years that that mitigated my weeding in that section of the garden just a huge amount. Yeah. I noticed that in the garden that I have now, because we laid down some crushed stone and put the grow bags right on it. But to keep the weeds from coming through, we did... I did as much cardboard as I could, as we had. Mm -hmm. And then the other half, 
I put down a weed barrier, the, the weed cloth. Yeah. No weeds came up through the cardboard. I had a ton of weeds on the weed cloth side. That has been my same experience as well, which is why I use the cardboard. So I, <laughs> I hear like, you. Oh, I wish I had more free cardboard. <laughs> yes, I know. I don't know if, you know, reaching out maybe to like grocery stores or like Costco's. Like, I don't know. That might be yeah. something that I entertain in, in the future or even just like to neighbors, like, Hey, any of your cardboard <laughs> that, that doesn't have, you know, a ton of like printed ink on it, save it for me. I've already started saving our Amazon deliveries. It's all yes. like stacked up in the garage waiting yes. for the move. <laughs> yeah. I know that cardboard boxes that become precious. It's like, Oh, do I need them for the move or do I need them for layering in the garden? Like both, but what's my biggest, <laughs> what's my biggest priority there? I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have, is there, do you have one last question or anything that you could use some guidance on? I think those were all my questions. Oh, well, good. I'm feeling, we're feeling quite accomplished then. Well, I look forward to seeing how you got, how it progresses and what you put in. And of course, inside the Academy community, if you have any questions as you get a little bit closer, definitely take advantage of that so we can all jump in and, and help, but such exciting things happening. So I'm really excited for you guys. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, I hope that you found that consult helpful and we're able to glean some great tips for links to any of the blog posts or resources that we talked about within this episode. I have a lot of content on the website. You can hop on over to melissaknorris.com forward slash 335. That's just the number 335, melissaknorris.com 335, because this is episode number 335. Now, today's verse of the week really is almost the entire chapter of Ezekiel chapter 18. I know a lot of times, well, I don't know, I shouldn't speak for everyone, but a lot of times we spend a good portion in the New Testament because that is obviously Jesus's teaching. We see, you know, his birth, his teachings while he was live, his death, the resurrection, and the story of the disciples thereafter, Revelation. But there is a lot to be gleaned from the Old Testament as well. So I have been working my way through Ezekiel and what specifically made me want to share about chapter 18 is the story of where God is telling his people Israel that each person is responsible for their own actions, that the son is not responsible for the father's actions. The father is not responsible for the son's actions. Of course, once that son is of age, of course, even as a child, we do our best to rear up our kids. But ultimately, your salvation and if you go to heaven or not is based upon your actions and choices. You can't have secondhand salvation is basically what it's imparting. But also it talks about how if you walk with God and do what is righteous according to his word, and then you fall away from God and don't repent, then it doesn't matter that you are righteous beforehand. If you didn't repent and you fell away into a life of sin, then Whatever the way we're living at the end of our life is going to be the way that God judges us based upon our actions. And then on the flip side, he says, if you lived a life of sin, doing things that went against the word of God, but then you repented, turned yourself around and started to live a righteous life, then you will be alive in Christ 
even though we're talking about the Old Testament, it's still a reflection and shows the way of what happens once Christ comes and dies for us. So specifically, it's the last two verses, but I would highly recommend that you go through and read through that chapter as well. But Ezekiel 18, chapter 30, or excuse me, chapter 18, verses 31 and 32, cast away from you all your transgressions by which you have transgressed against me and make you a new mind and heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn, be converted and live. That was the amplified translation of the Bible. And first 31 may have sounded very familiar because it is what Ephesians 4:22 and 23 from the New Testament is based upon. But make in you a new mind and heart and a new spirit because it's not God's desire that any of us would die in our sin. His his desire is that we would all turn to him and live for him and be saved. It's why he sent his son. And I think it's important to remember that for ourselves and to take this time as I was reading through that verse to think about any transgressions that I may be making or um, have snuck into my life or maybe haven't been rooted out yet and ask for forgiveness and to work on those. But it's also important for us to remember, which this goes back a little bit when we're talking about the divisiveness of our society right now, how we tend to want to see things very black and white when it comes to people and their choices. And that that's all we see instead of actually seeing the human behind them. We want to put labels on people. And so I think that's important because I need to remember myself that God loves every single person, every politician, everybody on social media. He doesn't desire for any of them to fall away from him or to die without knowing him. His desire is that every single person would repent, ask forgiveness of their sins and turn to a life with him. Now, we know that obviously that won't happen. Not every single person is going to do that, unfortunately. But it's important for me to remember that that is his desire. And whenever I'm having interactions or seeing things that I remember, God loves that person just as much as he loves me. And we're all in that sense, equal in the eyes of God, that he wants every single one of us the best for us and to be saved. So I hope that that provides you with a little food for thought. It's definitely some things I have been chewing on this week. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the podcast. I'll be back here with you next week. Blessings and mason jars for now. Mm -hmm.